Great. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the uh, LSE for the, the last day, I believe, of the uh, Literary Festival. Um, really impressed so many of you managed to um, actually turn up on a Saturday morning like this. Um, quite impressed that we've managed to turn up. <laughs> um, just in case there's any confusion, I'm Charlie Beckett. I work here uh, at the LSE. I used to be a journalist, and I'm now a professor in the Department of Media and Communications, and I'm also director of something called Polis, which is the LSE's uh, journalism think tank. Uh, and this is David Aranovich, who I'm sure you're all familiar with, somebody who's uh, done all sorts of things in his life, um, worked as a journalist back at the BBC, where indeed, uh, at the same time, I worked there as well, during the um, John Major years, <laughs> um, a time when Britain was divided over Europe. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like a long time ago. We sorted, we, we sorted all that out, didn't we? Yes, that's right. And subsequently, of course, David has worked as a, a columnist at places like The Guardian and currently at uh, The Times newspaper and has written a number of books, um, including this book, Party Animals. Um, David, as I say, I worked with David at uh, the BBC um, and then our paths didn't cross much until I came to the LSE um, where David has spoken about his previous book uh, about conspiracy theories and he's also spoken uh, with great passion about freedom of expression. Um, in a sense, I feel that I'm kind of familiar with the world uh, that David talks about in this book because uh, I also lived in uh, liberal North London for some time and indeed, yes, our paths crossed on the heath where David would be wa walking his dog and I'd be trying to uh, run around and get fit, but also a lot of the kind of people, indeed some of the actual people um, in, in the book I'm kind of familiar with, that, that wonderful milieu of uh, leftist uh, London politics. But I was never... Well, I suppose I had a similar trajectory as David in the sense that, um, you know, back in the day I was a hearty supporter of Arthur Scargill um, and since then went off to become a hearty supporter of... Uh, Tony Blair, um, but I've never had quite the um, commitment, I think, that David uh, talks about in this book, both, you know, in the early days when uh, you were an enthusiastic um, activist for the Communist Party, and then subsequently uh, David's uh, writing, which... Um, well, you know, you know yourself that uh, David can't see an issue floating in front of him without desiring to go ra through 12 rounds of mud wrestling uh, with, with those issues. Uh, but this book is, is, is quite different um, in many, many ways, if you've had a chance to read it. It's uh, an extraordinary book structurally uh, and uh, an extraordinary book in the sense that it ranges so much from, if you like, autobiography and biography into a really fascinating uh, philosophical uh, political discourse. Today, I'm going to chat with David a little bit about the book. We'll take questions from yourselves, but we're going to kick off with a little brief reading. So please welcome David Aronovich. Thank you.
Thanks, Charlie. And just to say, um, I was absolutely convinced no one would be here. Yes. <laughs> absolutely convinced. And when I managed to sort of try and work my way to the front of the LSE, having forgotten where this building was, and through the kind of... Uh, uh, so, uh, you obviously did too. Um, I was absolutely convinced there would be nobody here. In fact, I thought I wouldn't be here. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you very much for, for, for braving your way and, and finding it. This is just a little flavour from the uh, beginning of the book, because actually I find if you read too much, it sort of slightly gets in the way of the exchange that we're having. But it just gives you an idea of how, of how the book begins. Um, it doesn't really give you very much idea of how the book ends, as I think Charlie will agree. So, um, this is from right from the beginning. Like other party children, this is Communist Party children, I had, though it took me the first decade of my life to realise it, been born at a 90-degree angle to the rest of society. I simply lived that life, knowing no other, but the party people around me had chosen at some point to exist like that. So most things the world around us thought were good, we thought were bad. Much we held to be virtuous was considered pernicious by everyone else. For us, the churches were sinks of superstition. The royal family was a feudal remnant. The police were oppressors. The Americans were crass warmongers. The army was a tool of imperialism. The management of major companies were exploiters. And the press, the BBC and many teachers were purveyors of lies and propaganda. We were indifferent to, if not contemptuous, of crooners, Hollywood epics and musicals. We were overtly anti-war, anti-fascist, anti-racist, anti-apartheid, anti-rent-rises, anti-landlord, anti-bomb, anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, anti-neo-colonialist even. But we weren't miserable because there were plenty of things we were pro too. We liked trade unions and the more militant the better. We quietly loved the Soviet Union, were warm to Irish republicanism, supported national liberation movements from just about anywhere, up to the workers, worked for the cause of peace, or peace with the capital of P, as I thought of it, enjoyed world cinema, and took the collectivists' odd pleasure in male voice choirs and folk dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'll do for... Uh, so it just gives you kind of an idea about the very... Yeah, I always found the folk dancing the, the, the one where I stopped short, you know. <laughs> this 90-degree thing is fascinating. Um, when I was reading your book, it, it reminded me in a strange way of uh, John O'Farrell's book, Things Can Only Get Better, which is, you know, John, the sort of uh, comic writer who wrote this book about growing up as a, a Labour rather than a communist supporter. But he also he has a wonderful anecdote in the book where he's walking with his mother through a municipal park and he sees all the serried ranks of tulips in beautiful lines. And for some reason, he just feels angry about that, <laughs> that, that these, these, these tulips are being conservative. <laughs> you know, um, he didn't think that they were put there for the people's pleasure. No, the, his interpretation at that point was this was a sort of you know, regimented thing. And, it's a, and it is that kind of 90-degree thing that you have if you have a firm uh, set of beliefs that you know, life doesn't, unfortunately, especially if you're on the left, square up to... Uh, what you expect. Do you think there is something different about, um, you've just given a list there, of the way that uh, the Communist Party people were at 90 degrees? Or do you think it's common that people on the right will also feel at variance with reality? I'm, one group of people who might really identify with this sense are people who are brought up in quite um, strong Catholic households. Right. Um, I didn't realise this until, because the, the Communist Party, being a member of the Communist Party, so on, we had a complete alternative historiography. So going right the way back almost to the ancient Egyptians, we, we, we knew what side we were on in every struggle that they've had. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. uh, and so on, kind of, you know, get rid of slavery, bring in yeah. feudalism, get rid of feudalism, bring in capitalism. And Cromwell so on. good. Uh, that's right. Uh, uh, Cromwell good. Despite Absolutely. the Irish bit. Yeah, didn't talk too much about the yeah. Irish bit yeah. until until you got to the issue of Ireland later, at which point Cromwell became bad. But in terms of the world historical process, the Roundheads were good. Not only that, there would be kids' books written by communist writers or people who were uh, who the who we sort of approved of that would also have roundheads um, and parliamentarians. I mean, usually, of course, diggers and levellers and so on mm. as, your, uh, as your hero. So you'd know exactly where you stood in all these kind of struggles. And, you, you know, it's really... I once interviewed Nick Griffin. Mm. Um, uh, uh, in, went to Welshpool to interview him. This is what the BNP was sort of kind of rising up. And I did this thing with him that I, you know, which is a real mark of finding where people committed people's very or extreme people's uh, beliefs are you just ask them what side they're on in any particular struggle and it was amazing he was on the side of the southern states you know right. <laughs> and, so, and, yeah, um, and so you just put second world war to him and he says shouldn't have been fought you know right. etc it kind of tells you where he is so we're Catholics um, what I realised after a while was that there was actually a similar alternative historiography now when I was a kid, I imagine it's, well, I know from what my children have been taught at school, it's slightly different now, but nevertheless, we were taught, and some of you would have been taught this too, the, essentially what we call the Whig version of history, which is about, of English history particularly, and I mean English history, which was essentially that you progress through the stages, through the various kind of reform acts, etc., to, as the economist put it in 1848, that high exalted state we now occupy. And so on, whatever you consider, whatever you consider that to be. And an absolutely critical moment in this is Henry VIII's, for whatever reason, maybe personal reasons, getting rid of the Catholic, uh, getting rid of the Pope, etc., making himself head of the Church of England. And then we, ca we couched, or, the, or was couched for us, Elizabeth's reign entirely in terms of its kind of beneficial effects in cementing the religion and identity of the country. Um, in, in that sense, she was seen as a kind of, and Protestantism was seen as a kind of uh, uh, progressive force. And what's funny about that is that that would be a view shared by the kind of capitalist Whig version of history and also by a kind of Marxist historiography as well, by and large, you're going through the stages. Um, what I didn't realise was that Catholics were taught something completely different. They did not see the reign of Elizabeth I as some blessed, great, wonderful thing. They saw it as a complete bloody disaster in which Catholics were um, persecuted and in which the connection that the English church had with the Catholic world was sundered uh, and a terrible kind of schism was created. Now, they are actually taught that at Catholic schools or a version of it at Catholic schools instead of this other kind of version. And so on. And it's so I so it's a long answer to your question, but in, if you are brought up a Catholic, of course, you may not be, you may be taught that at school, you may not be, but your parents or the surrounding world or what the priest says and so on encompasses that alternative vision of the way in which society, in which society is. So some church organisations, to a lesser or greater degree, would also have those kind of alternative structures. They'd also give you those alternative structures uh, for week, you know, they'd structure your weekend. So you'd go to Sunday school, we went to socialist Sunday school, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, they would go out, you know, they would have their own youth groups, 
Um, we would be out at demonstrations and rallies and so on all the time. They maybe would have their church groups. We would have the Communist Party branch committee meeting yeah. round at the house and all the comrades, and that's what they called each other as they came in through the door, comrade this, comrade that, and so would come in and kind of talk about it. So it's that sense, so that sense of being slightly alternate and so on is not... I don't say it's a common experience, but there are other groups who, who have it. Mm. Now, you mean we'll sort of we'll go on to talk about, if you like, the more sort of psychological aspect, but just on the, the, the CP itself, obviously it's not quite as... It hasn't got the same lengthy history of something like the Catholic Church. Um, you know, the, the Communist Party is something quite historically specific, and you could argue relatively short... And in a sense, you're talking about it in the past tense, although there may well be you know, active CP members in the audience as we speak. Um, but that period you're talking about, you know, especially with those major events like Hungary and so on, was quite a sort of specific historical period. How do you think about it um, politically? Do you, do, you, do you feel this was a ghastly, um, you know, dead-end, blind-alley of political activism, or do you think actually, you know, it's kind of contributed to... That could engender almost the longest answer in the history of answers. <laughs> um, the first thing to say is, you're absolutely right about this sort of longevity. Next in the book, year, you're actually quite, in a sense, I mean, you've just read out a list of things they believed in in a slightly mocking tone. Um, well, very mocking tone. But, um, you know, it, it, do, do, do you see it as something that in the end, you're embarrassed to have been associated with that oh, was God, pernicious no. in itself. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, by and large, if you're embarrassed by something, you don't spend a lot of time writing a book about it. True. Yeah. Uh, and so on. I mean, some, you know, maybe Katie Hopkins would, but... Yeah. <laughs> it's a delicious idea. I wouldn't. Um, I'd love to see Katie Hopkins on communism, yeah. Next year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that would> Material <laughs> determinism, a history. <laughs> Next year... Um, actually making a point, is actually the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. So the whole thing, by and large, was encompassed within 100 years or less than 100 years, whereas the Catholic Church, as you quite rightly point out, has been going a fair bit Mm. longer than that, uh, and in that sense has a sort of much greater longevity. Um, uh, So I think, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, Now, where should we take this, Charlie? Shall we start at the kind of grand historical level? Let's do that. We'll start at the grand historical level. I suppose about ten years ago it came, occurred to me after sort of years of kind of travelling and um, uh, mentally that is, that probably it would have been better if Kerensky had stayed as leader of Russia in 1917. In other words, although you can kind of say all kinds of things about it, I think actually uh, communism itself was a dead end. Uh, proved to be a dead end. The kind of notion of that there was a sort of scientific state, um, uh, science, Marxism as a kind of notion of science, uh, which you went through stages inevitably. Uh, and then um, this particular stage in which you replaced capitalism with a completely different system which was led by a particular section of society, the proletariat, um, of which the Communist Party was the vanguard and the leading organisation, and therefore you can see the danger. It substitutes itself uh, eventually for most of the organs of democracy because it already embodies the virtues like a priesthood, if you like, Mm. uh, uh, does. Um, 
whilst being on the left or being, you know, or, or being progressive, had has all kinds of virtues, and I would still count myself as being on the centre left. Um, I do think that the actual <coughs> communism itself was a dead end. But if you say it's a historic dead end and so on, that's not the same as saying that the people that anybody who was involved with it was a bastard. Hmm. Um, and what, but one of the reasons I wrote this book was because of trying to get to grips with the question which was posed by Martin Amis in Code of the Dread, do you remember that? Where he says, why is it that we're allowed to sort of call each other comrade and have sort of jokey pictures of Mao or whatever, and Lenin up, etc., in situations where you wouldn't tolerate it? I've a, I'm just reviewing this gigantic new biography of, of Hitler, for instance. Um, now, it's fair to say that, by and large, if m- my parents had been Nazis, um, I would not have read a, written a little book called... Uh, there is a very good book called Memoirs of a Fascist Childhood by Trevor Grundy, which I really recommend to you, but it's very rare on the whole. And you, w- and you certainly wouldn't have this kind of resplendent imagery. It's very, very unlikely you'd yeah. have something, yeah. which is the front of my book, which has yeah. a kind of... encodes a little swastika in here and somebody kind of going like that. And so maybe it would... Maybe it would sell, blimey. But anyway... So it was an attempt to try and answer the question, how could good good people get themselves into a situation which they were in before the 60s, the 60s sees things change, and so on, of effectively tolerating, not only that, uh, but supporting acts which were... Of which, which led to the deaths of millions of people, or retrospectively saying, well, either those things didn't happen, it's all lies, etc., or a large amount, or they were exaggeration, or saying that they were justified. Um, so one of the things about, that the book tries to do is answer that question, is how people can both be good and bad at the same time, can be both uh, uh, committed, um, passionate... Uh, believe in some of the highest ideals mm. that you can imagine in a society, mm. and somehow or other become apologists for and tolerate some of the worst things that human beings are capable of doing. Yeah. And it, it's funny you're saying this. I, 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 um, uh, I have a, a photo of my late mother wearing a swastika brooch. You know, so there's a sort of there's, you know, strange symbolism arises in one's past. Um, Not because she was a Buddhist. No, no, indeed, that's right. Because because she was a teenager in in Hitler's Germany, and many people did. So, but yeah, interesting. Exactly. Um, your interest in in people who have um, passionately held beliefs that you feel are um, what's the word false or deluded. Um, your previous book, Voodoo Histories, which looked at conspiracy theories in a sense, I suppose, was fascinated in a similar way, that people held yeah. you know, deep commitments, which, as you put out, was, in the end, people have conspiracy theories or believe in them passionately, partly because of their psychology and partly because they have perhaps quite dodgy, deep beliefs. Mm. You, know, you pointed out the anti-Semitism of a, lot of, of a lot of conspiracy theories. But when you came to talk here, um, and your book dismantles those conspiracy theories much in many ways perhaps in the same way this book attempts to dismantle communism and yet when you did that lecture to those nice people and the room was full of conspiracy theorists you know there was a lot of tinfoil hats and things um, 
afterwards, you went out and spoke to them for nearly an hour mm. in a kind of attempt to sort of have a rational discussion. Are you the sort of last Enlightenment believer? Are you the last <laughs> person left who actually thinks rational discourse can somehow convince people? Well, here we are in the London School of Economics, and I think if we're not going to believe in the potential power of rational discourse then I suppose we might as well close it down and turn it into a gigantic nightclub. Um, that, uh, that's on the option list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Neoliberal educational reforms. No, I mean, one of the things that, points that I make about uh, uh, in the book is that actually, quite often, what we think of as our kind of you know, cerebral cogitations, the results of them, uh, owe as much to our emotional requirements as they do to mm. our... Uh, uh, as they do to our thought processes. So for me, for instance, for various reasons which we could or could not go into, optimism is very, very important. Or rather, I feel completely obliterated or negated by extreme pessimism. And so one of the optimistic things that I like to believe is that if you can enter into a dialogue with people in a reasonable way, then you have a reasonable chance of something Coming from, coming from it. I'll give you a, just a tiny example of something I noticed in something fairly recently. You said earlier that I've been involved, I'm chair of something called Index on Censorship in the Freedom of Expression, uh, in Battle for Freedom of Expression. One of those people who's fallen foul of some of the kind of, you know, campus decisions that you can't cause offence is a woman called Mariam Namazi. Mm. Um, and she went to Goldsmiths, I think it was. They, there was a, the Islamic Society wanted her banned. Um, she is, um, comes from a Muslim background, but she's a fierce secularist uh, and so on. And, of course, the thing that she knows best is Islam religiously. So one of the things that she dismantles is Islam. And they said this was terrible and she was an awful person and so on. Um, and, but the meeting went ahead. Uh, all these guys from the Islam sock came down the front and were kind of heckling her, etc., and sort of just doing, behaving bad, not really heckling, but just sort of, you know, dropping things on purpose and banging <coughs> things down and then getting up and going out and coming back in again. At the back were a whole lot of women from Islam society in the hijab and so on. And what began to occur between them and the Mazi was actually a dialogue. At first, the dialogue was quite, uh, that they were giving her was quite hostile. But you could see that if they were left at it long enough, this actually was a woman born in a, brought up in a Muslim background, and that there, was some, that there was some getting through to be done. One of the things that worries you enormously about kind of contemporary politics, particularly, say, in the States, is that people don't even live in the same places of different politics, let alone they don't, even, they don't watch the same channels, they don't read the same books. Here... We're better off than that. We've still got public spaces where people come together and contend with each other uh, and so on. So in that sense, I'm optimistic. Mm. Um, and yes, I do think that there is... I mean, one of the reasons why I enjoyed the business of leaving The Guardian to go to The Times was that as somebody who's very pro, um, let's say, immigration... Um, and very liberal, I would find myself in a whole series of debates with people who didn't necessarily agree with me, mm. rather than continuously, every time I kind of give vent to it, talking only to people who had already decided that they were on the same side. Mm. Um, which is, you don't, I mean, you just didn't get that kind of feeling of anything moving. Mm. Exactly, the dangers of sort of homophily, isn't it? The, 
the, the kind of filter bubble thing. Yeah. Um, the book um, obviously ends up, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't, hasn't read it, um, but it certainly goes much more into um, the personal and the psychological. Um, I wondered at the, at the moment across the, the way in this building there's a, uh, a debate around feminism, and one of the great sort of feminist um, slogans, as it were, was, you know, the, the personal is political. Yeah. How, how much does that phrase differ from what you're talking about, about the psyche and ideology? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, 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 it actually takes it and reverses it right. um, as well, which is to say, I mean, essentially what the... Essentially, everything is both personal and political, in a sense, and your politics are a reflections of your of your personalities. One of the things I was really concerned that the, the latter third of the book, which goes back into the period mostly before I was born and discovers things that I just simply hadn't known, I hadn't realised, and then some other things that happened while I was around, is essentially about how it is possible for people to simultaneously know something and not know something, to have to be in a state of denial, but not in a state of so denial at denial so absolute that they're not sort of, in some sense, on the fringe of their consciousness, aware of what's going on, but often choosing not to see where that takes you or not to progress down the road to, to, to see what it means. Sometimes because what it involves them in giving up if they do make the recognition is just too great. It's just too big. They've committed themselves too much. I mean... Um, uh, to give a kind of tiny example, kind of uh, on the fringe, if you get somebody from UKIP or even, you know, if I'm talking about a very committed Corbynista or something like that, it is pretty pointless my saying to them, "You're stupid." It's not really very because they sometimes they've committed quite a lot to be part of that for one reason or another. I might disagree with it, and I do, uh, and so on. Um, I might even think it's dumb sometimes, and I sometimes do. But what I'm not going to do is to try and make an impact upon them by on, on their minds by saying, you know, this is just... Well, I think that's one of the kind of lessons that slightly comes out of although the question about how it is you do change people's minds then becomes quite, becomes quite moot. But that quality of knowing and not knowing is not something that extends just to politics. It's absolutely... Uh, and the classic example um, uh, is also things like infidelity, infidelity in <laughs> relationships. I don't take that as not a sign that anything's going on. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There are other psychological responses. <laughs> okay. The shadow of Sigmund Freud looms behind all of this. I beg your pardon. Infidelity. So. So with infidelities, for instance, very often there's a denial of the meaning of the infidelity, let's say, on the person who's being unfaithful. But the ways in which people can overlook, read out, not see infidelity in their partners is absolutely staggering. I mean, one of the things that um, uh, has really enlivened uh, and enriched my life in the last 50, 20 years has... Um, been association with people who work in psychoanalysis. It's not from the point of view of accepting every kind of um, jot and tittle of what Sigmund Freud or anybody else says, but it's about the business of asking yourself more deeply why people do what they do and why they feel and why somebody might be saying 
what they're saying. Um, which become, I, I can't tell you how enlivening it is and how much more interesting it makes the world if you think about it a little bit like that. As I said, you don't have to take on board any dogma. You just sort of ask yourself a series of questions and, uh, and observations and try maybe sometimes to listen harder to what people are saying. I mean, to take an example, if you have a teenager that's not working very hard at school, the easiest thing for you to say is, oh, she's just lazy, for instance. But there might be something more to it than that. There might be something going on, might be fears of failure, and so on, etc. So you just sort of look at things in a different way. Well, with something like unfaithfulness, and so on, it is my... my uh, I'm talking to about, particularly to one particular friend in a psychoanalyst, Stephen Gross, who wrote the book The Examined Life, mm. over the years, talking about the patients he'd had who just wouldn't see the bloody thing in front of their face. Yeah. There's one hilarious example, just a great hilarious example, with this woman who, I mean, it's not hilarious for her, but this woman who, it was clear to him from the way he was talking that her husband was a serial uh, uh, philanderer, but she wouldn't have any of it. She even, she, <laughs> there was even the occasion when one of his workmates called him on the telephone at home and said, hello, he's Shagger there. <laughs> <laughs> and even then... Because if she said, you know, he was the, he, that this was what was going on, then her life disappeared. Her life as she'd organised it, as she'd allowed for it and so on, disappeared and some completely different life began to open up, almost like a kind of bereavement. So quite a lot, the, the end of the book is really an attempt to try and get to grips with that, both in the personal and in the political sphere. Yeah, and it, and it is very interesting thinking about the book in those terms. Um, uh, Alexei Sale, another um, ex-communist, um, talked about in his review of your book, um, said you know that in the end you do approach a kind of uh, despair and almost um, disgust with um, your parents, frankly. Um, and he says, "quote Despite years of psychoanalysis, he, David." Still, still possesses a great deal of, of suppressed and unexpressed rage towards both his parents and the politics to which they dedicated their lives, unquote. I wonder to what degree, and I think your previous answer sort of says something about this, to what degree this was a writing cure? No, no, all, all, I mean, all such things are bound to be cathartic in, in a mm. sense. And it's very odd to take a book in which somebody expresses their rage and then say it's unexpressed. That's <laughs> true. Um, I, did, uh, I was wondering what exactly else you should have said in the book, because if you read the book, you'll see know, it's quite I mean, frank. I mean, yeah. Unless he's trying to say that I'm angrier than I allow in the book, which mm. I, I'm, I, I'm not sure, but I, 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 under, I, I suppose in a sense I take what he means. I mean, one of the readings of the book, which first say Melissa Ben, um, Tony Ben's daughter, wanted to give it in the New Statesman, is this idea that it's somehow kind of an act of revenge, and that... Um, I, because of being unhappy as a child, I take revenge on, on, on their politics. Um, there's several reasons why I think this is wrong, not least because I actually, for many years, followed their politics. And mm. when I was an adolescent, um, re rebellion against the politics wasn't what I, what wasn't what I did. And as I think I may go to quite pains to suggest at certain parts of the book, there are many aspects of their politics, such as internationalism and so on, which I've kind of fully 
fully embraced. And there's this kind of... The other thing about the British Communist Party was, because it was always in opposition, it was also slightly bohemian mm-hmm. as well, in an odd kind of... And certainly what the Soviet Communist Party wasn't. But, you know, being the establishment and the kind of great fist, etc. But the British Communist Party could afford to be a little bit kind of, you know, weird and odd and so on. And, that, and, and that's a very valuable thing. Likewise, you know, to have grown up in a background which, firstly, which had which gave you a kind of in to almost every country. So, I, you know, I knew where all these places were because of the way in which we discussed things. And happy holidays that you discuss in the book. Yes, and, and <laughs> sometimes... Well, yeah, one. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 uh, in that sense, the material benefits of having a father who worked for the Communist Party were, to say the least, nougatry. I yeah, mean, that's right. Just wasn't, there, weren't, there, there weren't many to them. Um, so I don't... So although there are aspects of what happened, particularly about parts of my own education, which I'm angry about, and then there are parts of the way in which, because of the way they were, because they could have been like nothing else, Mm. because of their own backgrounds and their own uh, desires and so on, my father brought up uneducated in complete and abject poverty about two miles east of here uh, in, in the Stepney of the 20s and 30s. I mean, and when we talk about poverty and the real thing, my mother effectively abandoned by her father, her, her, her two sisters when her mother died, parked with, uh, with rather cold guardians in Worcestershire while her father then went on and started another family. This kind of continuous sense of total, of the likelihood of abandonment and being completely blasted by the infidelity when she was actually forced to admit it, never really wanting to have her own children, really, but having them as a kind of adjunct to maintaining uh, my father there. And my father, who wanted more than anything else to kind of make a, make a splash in the world somehow or other, mm. and that was, and worked all the time, worked for the party, worked for the revolution, and then later on worked in other kinds of ways. Now... I can and do, in some sense, at some moments, feel a sense of anger about that. But that is an anger which I am very, very aware of, in a sense. Mm. And I, you know, I kind of slightly turn it back on, on, on anyone who's not been through the process to wonder, actually, whether what Alex Excel is not slightly saying, and Melissa Ben is not slightly saying, actually, is their anger really is suppressed. Now, of course, this isn't easy. See what a trick right. <laughs> See what a trick It's all them, really. That's right. Yeah. In a second, questions from you, please. So get your questions ready. But final question, which is, is a bit personal. Um, how has it changed your sense of being a father yourself? Writing the book? Yeah, and well, a father and obviously a, a husband as well. Um, if I, I yeah, I mean, like quite a lot of parents, I defined significant parts of my parenting against my parents' parenting. Mm. I mean, those of you who were, let's say, in your late 50s, early 60s and so on, were probably brought up by a generation of parents who weren't very good at it. Mm. Uh, and if it's any consolation, their parents were even worse. LAUGHTER uh, you know, I was just—I was on a do- I was doing a thing on the Today program yesterday morning with Esther Ransom. One of the things, because she was sort of saying, "Oh, nothing's changed really, etc. Everything is much as society takes the same views." And I said, "No, I mean, we didn't make marital rape illegal in this country till 1991. 1991. We didn't stop corporal punishment in schools till 1988. Mm. In state schools, we allowed it. In private schools, till 1998. This is this is the beating of children. I mean, it's remarkable, really. So likewise." with your kind of parenting. My mother had an exciting war as a teenager and young adult. 
and then found herself, the mother of young children, expected to do menial and clerical work while her husband went out and fought for the revolution. She was thwarted. Of course she was. That, a large part of that generation of women, it seems to me, were being were thwarted at the, at the same time. Mm. My father had nearly no model of parenting at all. His mother was bonkers. Mm. Um, uh, you know, she was really scarred by, the, by moving from a sort of village near Vilnius to London. She never learned how to speak mm. English. Um, very unfortunate for her that David Cameron wasn't around in those days to kind That's of right. give her the, the boost that she needed. <laughs> Um, uh, to learn the, to learn the language and so on. So their models and my you know, my model my mother's model for parenting was that there wasn't any. She had a dim, distant memory of this loving mother, this absent father who she idolises, and these cold, mm. rather cold, though doing their best and doing their duty, guardians. Now, so my father wasn't around very much. They still were better than their parents had been. Yeah. Uh, you know, they still were the kind of you know we will. We're, if there is a necessity for books, we will somehow kind of supply them, we will meet them, and so on. But the thing that I realised that children needed I mean, was your time, and also uh, that they needed your, uh, your love for them to be unconditional, that they shouldn't be... Our, our parents' generation were bad at placing conditions, really, on, on their giving to their children, if you're like this, if you're like that, and so on. So we... Now, it's conceivable, Charlie... And people say it that we've gone too far down the other. We've gone down, too far down the other route. I don't see it myself, uh, really. But you can see an argument for it. You know, like they never go away yeah. and keep on blaming economics for this. But That's actually, right. they're not prepared to be as poor as we were prepared to be at the yeah. age of eighteen. It seems to me. But yeah. yes, perhaps we should be getting the Beckett and Aronovich children on stage and ask them. Anyway, actually asked me, "What are you going to do?" If your daughters write a book like this, yeah. well, first I'll be dead. I carefully waited and so on. They couldn't be. A, 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 well, I've made sure mine are virtually illiterate, so that's yeah. all right. <laughs> um, Shall we take some questions, please, from the floor? Would you just put your hand up? And there's one right in the middle. First, sorry, this gentleman in the blue top there. Um, Wait for the mic and just that. There you go. Thank you. Hello. Um, now that the scales have fallen from your eyes, or rather our eyes, um, how do you reflect on contemporaries who were um, clear-viewed about the tyrannies of the Eastern Bloc at the time when it was not fashionable to be so? Uh, for example, Robert Conquest, um, who I'm sure you're aware wrote a lot on Soviet um, Russia, Stalinist Russia. Uh, and equally, how do you reflect on those of your contemporaries who, despite all the evidence to the contrary, continued to believe in the communist utopia right till their deaths? Um, Eric Hosborn, for example. Um, well, uh, wh how, how, do you, how does that fit into your, um, to your own intellectual development in that respect? We can, we can either see that as kind of a specific historical thing or we can see that as part of a kind of more general human, uh, human trait and then, uh, and then apply it to them. I mean, obviously, by the time I was kind of around, that period had gone. And so part of the reason for going back in it into it was to discover how people had dealt with those the, exactly those things, including somebody like Eric. Eric Hobson was quite an interesting example. Um, but... 
uh, said by a woman called Vivian Gornick, who wrote a rather wonderful book called The Romance of American Communists. And she went back to all these old communists. And what she discovered, she said, was that they had an incredible scorn for anybody who'd left the party a minute before them because they were traitors <laughs> and an incredible scorn for anybody who'd left the party a minute after them because they were fools <laughs> and so on. People had a kind of unique way of describing their kind of own decision as being the only kind of intellectually respectable decision that anybody uh, could have taken. There was an incredible obduracy uh, because, partially because during the Cold War in the 50s, there were quite a lot of people, of course, who did leave the party and who subscribed to something like The God That Failed, the famous kind of compilation book by a series of left-wing, left-of-centre authors, including Arthur Kersler and so on, saying communism is a dead end led nowhere. And communists obviously took this very badly, and they internalised this as being a kind of... It's a bit like the old cliché... You start off left-wing and you move off right-wing as you have taxes to pay, and there's a kind of left-wing variant of that. You gradually sell out because you lose your capacity and your militancy and so on. Or you get suborned by the system and it kind of takes you in and pays you enough for you to become a capitalist, and, uh, etc. And you'll find all kinds of variants of, uh, of people sort of ascribing motives to, to, to other people uh, and so on. But essentially, the business of saying none of this was any good, is such an incredibly painful business. So there's a brilliant, there's a brilliant moment in the history of the Communist Party, the history of the world. Uh, I mean, they've been through so much. After all, they've tolerated the Hitler-style impact of 1939 because they've understood in their own minds that this was necessary to the survival of the Soviet Union because of the way in which Chamberlain and people behaved, trying to put the Nazis against the Soviets and they had to buy time, etc. They've added to that the idea that maybe, therefore, it was also necessary for the Soviet Union to take half of Poland, the whole of the Baltic states and a little bit of Finland on the way because you had to have a kind of buffer state. So they've brought that kind of argument as well. They have brought in deep history the idea that the show trials, etc., is because there generally were these extraordinary enemies of the state in Russia at that time who were doing things like putting glass in the workers' butter and, and, you know, uh, and sending ro- locomotives off the rails, etc. Um, then you come to... Then, all of us, then for a while, they're popular. Russia is our great kind of ally. Uncle Joe Stalin is not just a kind of communist figure, but is a kind of uh, a British figure. Communist Party membership doubles, trebles, quadruples, and so on. Um, their meetings are very big. They get two MPs elected in 1951, which is double what UKIP managed at the last election, uh, and so on, and quite a lot of also sympathetic Labour MPs, about 10 to 12 Labour MPs are what you would call fellow travellers who actually had more in common with the Communist Party than they had with the Labour Party in many ways. Then they get into the, the serious bit of the Cold War, to the McCarthy era and to the armed camps era, when actually, far from being our allies, the Soviet Union is now the great enemy and so on. And they hunker down, is what they do. You can see it happening. They absolutely hunker down. And it's during this period, actually, in many ways, the things that my parents were doing and supporting are the most um, uh, unsupportable. You know, they they effectively go for a kind of form of, you know, like supporting the show trials in, 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 in Eastern Europe of people who some communists had actually known during the war in Britain, Czechoslovak communists who'd been over in Britain during the war and so on. Um, now, 
Then comes this one moment, this one great case. It's not Hungary. People talk about it being Hungary of 1956. It isn't. It's Khrushchev's speech to the secret session of the Soviet 20th Party Congress in 1956. Because up until then, they've all been going, you all see all that stuff that's said about Russia, it's lies. Well, that stuff about Stalin, it's lies. Um, actually, Soviet Union is a more democratic place, if anything, you know, despite all the terrible things that it's, you know, it faced the full wrath of Hitler, it lost 20 million people during the war, it was effectively responsible for defeating Hitler during the Second World War, which incidentally is a truth, of course. Um, and um, it's all been, uh, all, these, all these lines. And then, and there's all these terms, you know, Tito of Yugoslavia, who was a hero, turns out to be a terrible villain, an American agent, and so on. And then in 1956, Khrushchev says, no, actually, it was all true. And everything you believe was rubbish. And not only that, but you actually found yourself arguing for rubbish, etc. And Stalin was a monster, etc. Well, this is a moment. Now, if you can stay in the British Communist Party after that, frankly you have shown yourself to be the steelest, the hardest, the kind of most determined, you know, you've taken every kind of punch that they can throw at you and you're still standing some. You might change your views a little bit, you might not be as close to the Russian as you used to be before, but you are the hardest of the hard, really. Now, Eric Hobsbawm was a very obstinate man. He was against the invasion of Hungary by, by, by the Russians, despite the position of the Communist Party at that time. He argued for changes in the British Communist Party, which, some of which he didn't get, and yet he absolutely refused to leave and do one of these recantations. So we go back to the point we made about personalities. In the case of Eric Hosborn, he could not bear the business of being associated being put in the same picture as the people who had recanted because he had no respect for them. And he wanted to see himself, in some sense, as I'm fairly sure, as somebody who, who, kept, on, who kept on going. Yeah. Yeah, we've, we've got to ten minutes, so let's going to try and rattle through some relatively that's quick... A, that's what that's he's saying, he's being quick. Shut the foot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, we're here to hear you talk. So if I can just get one microphone to this lady down here, but we'll start with this gentleman in the white jumper. Sorry. Hello, going back to your Catholic analogy, um, <laughs> while you were being brought up a, commu a communist, uh, I was attending Mass as a young boy in Manchester in the 1950s, at the end of which uh, there was a prayer read out for the conversion of Russia. Um, <laughs> then when I was a little older, I actually went to Didn't a seminary work, as a, a teenager <laughs> in the northeast. And every year we used to attend uh, a, a meeting, a gathering, which had, I think, tens of thousands of people. And it was to do with the, for, for the uh, canonization for the 40 martyrs at the time of the Reformation that you, uh, uh, that you refer to. Um, Coming to my question now. No, I like this. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. Um, I left the Catholic Church, uh, but of course, I'm often seen as a lapsed Catholic, and I still find myself, you know, returning to the art, the music, and something which I imbibed as I grew up. Do you find yourself having a mixture of partly guilt for leaving the Communist Party? Uh, and if I could throw in another question, at what point did you have? 
your epiphany, if I can use a religious so do, you, do you still listen to the male voice choirs? <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret. It's, it's, your question is a really, really, <coughs> is a really good one, and your experience... Actually, incidentally, I'd like to hear more about that 10,000 meeting. No, seriously, because I think it sounds like an interesting piece mm. of rather overlooked history, and we could kind of... We could usefully kind of think about it. All these kind of... You know, what was it kind of... It, it, it's... It, 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 these are threads that are easily tugged, if that makes any sense to you. So a certain thing can tug a thread that kind of goes back emotionally <clears throat> into that period. So I was brought up on kind of heroic Russian films about the Russian Revolution, you know, October, by all these Eisenstein movies mm. and so on, and this kind of Russianism. So we were very kind of Russophile uh, and so on. And there can be things associated with that, bits of art, etc., by Repin or an Eisenstein, bits of Eisenstein movie. The scene on the steps in Odessa in Battleship Potemkin, for instance, is still going to be to me an incredibly kind of powerful uh, emotional, emotional scene. And so, so those things happen all the time. Um, the last time I really found it pushing my writing was when I was working for The Independent about 16 years, I wrote a column about Cuba. And it was essentially uh, a kind of piece of ap apologia for the Castros. It was sort of kind of hedged around, but nevertheless it sort of was there. Mm. Um, and it was essentially a kind of, you know, it was a kind of appendix moment really it was a kind of moment before before letting go because when i went to cuba in 2008 for all the things about the american blockades and so on which were true actually what you found was a society in which people weren't allowed to express a contrary opinion anywhere by any means and as a kind of somebody who has had the benefit of being a british journalist in this sort of in this society for all these years and absolutely used to listening to people say what they like and saying it that when you are up against that and you find it and people says oh we can't or so says to you on the street let's not speak here because i think that person over there is listening and it turns out they are mm. um that's kind of quite a that's quite a big shock um my epiphany, I had several bits of epiphany, uh, some to do with the Communist Party, some more generally to do with what you, what you might call kind of left heroicism, um, was probably the period just before Tony Benn stood for the Deputy Labour leadership in 1981, when I suddenly realised that I thought it would be a bad thing for him to win. And it wasn't going to work. And that meant I had to come to terms with the fact that all that stuff wasn't working. Uh, it'd be, it's a very difficult position now because those of us who were that age then and went through that now watch the kind of Corbyn thing with a ton of terrible feeling of deja vu. I mean, it's not just sort of slightly, it's kind of overwhelming. Well, the difference is that in, it would be as if Tony Benn had won. It's, it's not even as if Tony Benn had won, it's as if Eric Heffer had won. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Which would have been, yeah, talking of communists, yeah. So next question. Um, to bring it back to the personal, your, your parents are dead, but you have three siblings, and I heard you speak the other day about your sister not liking the book. Did you go through a process of clearing, giving them any veto about what you've written, or did they read the book before it was published? Um, they, they all knew it was happening, and they all knew roughly the kind of things that would be in it, but... Um, <clears throat> that had to do, really. Um, I don't know how many kind of writers or 
would-be writers there are amongst... Uh, in, you can't give people a veto over what you write. Um, as soon as you do that, you're not trying to tell the truth. You're trying to tell a kind of vetoed version of uh, whatever the truth, or a convenient version, or a version that won't upset people. Now, of course, I badly wanted it not to upset anyone. Um, and, you know, I... My sister and I won't be at daggers drawn about it. She's not, she's not that kind of person, really. Um, uh, but, you know, there are aspects of it that she doesn't like it. But no. Um, you know, you can't get through writing something which is semi-biographical, <coughs> which you have to recognise what you're doing, which is, in a sense, you're taking somebody else's past as well and casting it in your own light. So you're doing some kind of violence to their vision of themselves. Mm. And you have to be sensitive when they then say, that's not how I recall it. You can't turn around and say, well, you're deluded, etc. It's not going to work very well, uh, and so on. But no, you can't let people... I don't think you can let uh, people, even your nearest, um, determine what it is that you write. And that's, and that's why you should never live with a writer. <laughs> or be in the same world as... Yeah, go on, just, just quickly go there. Just, just try and get two quick questions in, so brief as you opinion, can. The, um, uh, um, the word fascist is misused now because, simply because of those nine years between 1936 and 1945. But originally, etymologically, communism and fascism are exactly the same thing. The only difference politically was that fascism was... Um, um, uh, allowing private ownership and, uh, and enterprise, whereas the communists, they say not, but they did as well. So I uh, just wonder, you know, because... Uh, and also, there are a lot of examples of fascists, you know, the, the, the boundary of roads in this country, and I see quite, quite a number of them. I can even tell them, you know, uh, anyway, now is not the problem. So I just find it uh, upsetting, in a sense, you know, also, because like when you mention com comrade, the fascists in Italy call each other camerata. Same, same origin, same etymology. So what do you think? Well, the etymology of comrade is someone who shares a room. It comes from the word camera and so on, um, uh, and was probably used by people when, in those days when you went to staging inns and so on, and, you know, that's where, and people found themselves sharing a room. Um, I'm... Fascism essentially tends to be about nationalism uh, and communism tended to be, although Stalin made some interesting changes to that at various times when it excluded him, tended to be about internationalism. And, um, and I'm going to leave it at that. People can work out their own kind of... I, I take, you know, uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting point, but... Um, there is a, well, it's fascinating, oh, that it's fascinating that you're reading the Hitler book in that sense. Was there somebody over here very quickly? Yeah, last one, I think, to be honest. Uh, you've mentioned Corbyn several times. <laughs> and um, I just wondered if you thought that the Labour Party is in terminal decline now, if many people consider it to be a post-industrial party supported by the trade unions. We, it seems to me that we need a party of the centre-left. And in that sense, I can't see that that is going to be formed around anything other than the Labour Party. I might be, might be being uh, uh, unsighted there. So I think the Labour Party will exist because something like it requires to exist. It's just that it's now going to be a really, really difficult battle 
to get it to the stage whereby it can, especially within our electoral system, compete in such a way that it has a chance of uh, taking power again. I mean, of course, that slightly depends. I mean, most of us will be listening. Charlie's earlier point about Europe and the major period. Mm. You always think the Tories can't be stupid enough to tear themselves to pieces uh, again over something uh, in the end uh, like Europe, and then it seems that they can. Yeah. Although it's a sort of... um it's a shame that one has to hope that the other side collapses rather than rebuild. No, no, it is, it, it, it is a big shame. I, mean, I, think, I think the Labour Party faces an absolutely enormous problem. And essentially, you know, I won't bore you to death with it, but I think what has to happen is there was a huge failure to, kind of tr- to present something attractive from the centre-left which would have given people a kind of... Uh, something to hold on to and say, yeah, I think we can see how we can take this forward. And into that kind of gap steps this other possibility, which is, you know, not in my mind a real possibility. Other people here might disagree. And so that's going to have to be done. It's going to take a long time. That's all. Exactly. And talking of time, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. Um, We do have to end it there. But thanks very much for your questions. And thank you, David, for being so frank and interesting.